Good morning. It's nice to be on this side looking out and seeing, seeing all the faces. It's really good. This morning, I'm going to tell you about, um, this is a section of scripture that I cherish, and the more I follow Jesus, I learn to cherish it more. I'm glad to be able to share with you this morning. Mount Whitney in California is the highest point in the continental United States. It's about 14,495 feet. As you gaze from what seems like the top of the world, only 80 miles to the southeast is the lowest spot of the United States at 280 feet below sea level and the hottest spot in the country with a record 134 degrees in the shade. What a contrast. One place is at the top of the world and the other is at the bottom. One place is perpetually cool and the other is relentlessly hot. From Mount Whitney, you look down on all of life. And from Death Valley, you can only look up to the rest of the world. Paul, in the scripture that we're reviewing this morning, um, is actually drawing a similar contrast for us in our passage. In these verses, Paul takes us from the lowest depths of despair to the highest riches of, reaches of joy and tells us the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. And that's the difference between eternal life or eternal death. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Lord, this morning, I, I just tremble at... Uh, your word, Father, this morning. I'm glad that I'm really nervous, Father, and I'm glad that uh, uh, only you can speak through me. I can't do this on my own this morning, Lord. And I just pray that you uh, open our ears and our eyes to hear from you, Lord. This may be a, set, uh, a portion of scripture we've read a thousand times, Lord, but I just pray that you speak to us this morning and that we hear what you want us to hear. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul told the people that they had great riches in Christ. Unfortunately, many of them were living as though they were spiritually bankrupt, when in fact they had a rich spiritual fortune right at their fingertips. Paul's reminder is not for only for Ephesians, it's for us this morning too. If you have your Bibles, I again invite you to turn to Ephesians, the second chapter. I'm going to be walking through these verses that Jake um, had shared and read to us earlier. Um, verses 1 and 2 specifically, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Apostle Paul, a Jew, keep in mind, reminds his Gentile audience where they came from. And if we want to be all that God's called us to be this morning, we too must recognize some of these hard facts that we're going to talk about this morning. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks straight talk. And we need to hear straight talk. I like straight talk. Um, we all need a friend that will speak straight to us. And Paul's an inspired, Holy Spirit-filled friend this morning that's telling us these things. Paul tells us in verse 1 that we are dead in our sins. Now, if you could see what I'm reading from here, I made the font like four times bigger than the rest of it. We're dead in our sins. 
you know, dead in our sins. How many, we got a lot of little boys in here and guys that were boys. You remember playing cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, um, army, and you, you know, you pretend like you had your gun, it was a piece of wood, and you'd shoot the other kid, and he, you know, the other kid wouldn't fall down. You go, you're dead. Oh, come on, dude, you're dead. I shot you already. No, I'm not dead. You're dead. That's not what Paul's talking about. If you're dead, it means there's nothing you can do. A dead person isn't responsive. A dead person can't rescue himself. Why? Because he's dead. All who are without Christ, who's the source of all life, are spiritually dead. Which means, of course, that they are ineffective when it comes to being able to attain a right relationship with God. For dead people can't do anything. You may remember one of the silliest movies. We're going to open the vault from the 1980s. A movie from 1989. Now, a lot of you all look at me like I have seven heads, but there was a movie called Weekend at Bernie's. Does anybody remember that? Oh, I'm seeing hands fly up. Yeah, okay, good. It's about a fun-loving salesman, Richard and Larry, um, and they're invited by their boss, which is a big deal, to go to spend the weekend at his posh um, beach house. Well, little they knew that their boss, Bernie, is the perpetuator of a fraud that they uncovered and is being arranged to kill these two salesmen. So he's having them over for the weekend to kill them. But things go awry, and when the plan backfires, Bernie's killed instead. The boss is killed by mistake. They pretend they don't want to lose this weekend at the boss's house, at this posh beach house. They want to experience all the riches that their boss has. So they pretend Bernie's still alive. I mean, they take him everywhere. I haven't seen the movie for years, but they take him surfing, they take him dancing, and you see Bernie, you know, he has sunglasses on all the time, but he's dead. He's dead. The fact is, dead people can't do anything, and that's what Paul's talking about. Spiritual death, spiritual inability to properly relate to God, being totally unable to do with with respect to anything, to pleasing God or to earn his favor. That is the state of all who will not come to God, as he says, through faith in Christ. Far from the city of Jerusalem, Israeli postal workers sort through really huge piles of undeliverable mail. I think this is an interesting fact. Including among these dead letters are many of them that are addressed to God. Some have been forwarded to foreign postal workers who think someone in Israel might know what to do with them. Eventually, all of these petitions to God end up at a recycling plant in central Israel. Unless one's approach to God is through faith in Christ and acceptance of his sacrifice for our sins at Calvary, they are sure to have the same fate as those letters in Israel. Apart from Christ, we're all spiritually dead. There's three brief points I want to consider today as believers and followers of Christ. First of all, we need to remember where we came from, where we were. Paul not only tells us the condition of the man without God, but he also tells us the cause of death. Now, I've been, you probably all know this about me, as I've preached, I tell you I love crime TV. I love um, uh, where you have to figure out who did the murder, who did it, or who done it, is what they say. Um, but, you know, the coroner is the one that determines the cause of death. So what was our cause of death in this scripture this morning? The coroner is Paul. He serves as our coroner, and he says, you're dead in trespasses. 
The word trespass means to cross the line. Trespass means to wander away from the path, and it means to break the law. Paul is saying that there was a time in all our lives when we were in trespasses. We can't forget that one time we were dead in our sins, and I cannot emphasize the severity of this truth. I'm going to say it a lot because this, the weight of its meaning surpasses anything we can see on social media or the news. We are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins before we know Christ. That means we are separated from God, and death in the Bible always means separation. Physical death is a separation from the spirit from the body, and spiritual death is a separation of us from God in all that is good. And that was our condition before we trusted Christ. We were separated from God because we were disobedient to God. We followed the ways of this world and of Satan himself. And in fact, not only we pagan Gentiles dead and disobedient, the Apostle Paul tells us that the so-called good people, too, were also dead and disobedient. Notice the subtle change where we go to verse 3. It says, um, in the first portion, it says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh." Again, it says, "...we all carrying out the desires of the body and the mind." Even good Jews followed the sinful desires and thoughts of their own hearts. Now, that's quite an omission for Paul, whose so-called righteous Jew was a righteous Jew. He's basically saying, no matter what your background, whether you grew up in church, whether you um, help little ladies across the street, it doesn't matter what your condition is because you were all dead in your sins because of the disobedience. We were born in this disobedience. Figure your birthday. I got a birthday coming out uh, up this month. I was dead in my in disobedience when I was born, even on my birthday. Later in verse 3, it says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That word children implies an intimate relationship with wrath. At one time, we were not close to God's love. We were by nature close to his rage against our sin. That was our condition before we came to know Jesus. So how can we change this course? We have to have someone who will intervene in our lives and change our course for us. That's why Jesus intervened into our world and died on a cross. He did it to protect us and give us the opportunity of life and to be changed. Let me try to give you an example this morning. On August 16th, 1987, a Northwest airline plane crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport. It killed 155 people. One person survived, though. The survivor was a four-year-old little girl from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. News accounts say when rescuers found Cecilia, they did not believe she'd been on the plane. Investigators first assumed she'd been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway on which the airliner crashed. But when they looked at the passenger registry, um, they found a little girl's name, Cecilia, on there. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of this little girl and wrapped her arms around her, and then would not let go of her through that complete accident. That's how she survived. Again, that's why Jesus intervened into our world and died on the cross. 
He did it to protect us and give us the opportunity to have life. Secondly, as believers and followers of Jesus this morning, we need to know where we're at today. Today on October 4th. Thank you. I'm glad you came this morning. Thank you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 6, the verbs are in past tense. God raised us up with Christ, past tense, and seated us with him already in past tense. This is something that has already happened to every believer in Christ. We've been positionally positionally seated with Christ ever since we trusted him as our savior. And that means we are not right we are right now with Christ in the place of all power with his holy spirit in us. Satan no longer has any authority over us whatsoever. God raised us from the dead and seated us with Christ, and God gave life to those who were dead. But he didn't leave us in the graveyard. No, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Think about it. After, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, the first thing we see them do is enjoy a meal together. So it's with those of us who have trusted Christ, like Lazarus, we've been called from the grave of sin to sit with Christ and enjoy his friendship. The best thing about our new life with Christ is, is that we are with Christ. God took us out of the grave and seated us with him. In the second year of George Bush's presidency, USA Today ran a story, a, a special interest story titled, Guess Who's Not Coming to a Bush Dinner? It's from 2002, I think. The Republican Party mistakenly invited an Ohio prisoner to dinner with the president. It was a $2,500 a plate event fundraiser in Washington, D.C. The Republican Party sent the invitation and a letter from Vice President Cheney to Robert Kirkpatrick at the Belmont Correctional Institution in eastern Ohio. Kirkpatrick, 35 years old, was sentenced the year before to nearly three years for drug possession and escape. Upon receiving the invite, this was his response. I'm going to tell them I'd be happy to go, but he's going to have to pull some strings to get me there. In essence, in essence, that's funny, but God did more than pull strings to get that same seat for us next to him. Again, it says we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet uh, because we're still here. I understand that. So what's Paul talking about? He's just letting us know how certain of an event that this is going to be. He's letting us know that followers of Christ don't have to doubt their resurrection from the dead. That's awesome news this morning. Jesus spoke of bringing his followers with him to heaven when he said in John 14, 1 through 3, do not, be, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This obviously is speaking of the next life. A 60-minute poll. Listen to the statistics on this. This poll, now you take polls for what they're worth. They're polling a group of people. But in this particular poll, (coughs) excuse me, 65% of Americans believe that people go to heaven. So if you had 100 people, 65 of those people are going to say, people go to heaven. There's there's an afterlife. Well, there's a 7% that they believe they go to either hell or purgatory. 6% believe they are reborn on earth. 2% believe they become ghosts. 20% have no opinion. Did you know we work with this, those statistics when we go to work, when we go to shop? Wherever we go, there's people, there's 20% of the people that aren't even thinking about what happens after they draw their last breath. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. See, when Jesus came, he came that we didn't have to we didn't have to remain dead, that we become a new creation in him when we accept him. The world doesn't offer us anything in this life beyond this life. So a lot of folks try to get what they can out of life. We work really hard to have a lot of special things. Nothing wrong with that. But you realize there's so much more than living life for yourself. You know there's something better waiting for us in the next life. And I'm, I'm grateful for that, that this life doesn't define what I have. It's when I cross to the other side that I'm going to have the riches of his glory experience that. Hebrews 11:24 through 26 reads, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh. He chose, now listen to this, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead for his reward in heaven. Looking ahead always, always transforms our vision. And the way we live our lives, it's going to be transformed by looking forward. It enables us to live this life with joy, to live this life with peace and hope. It enables us to move forward even when the difficulties come our way. Here's the third thing for Christians and believers in Christ. Grace, the word that we read in the scripture, changes everything. Grace changes everything. My original intentions was to hover more closely to these three verses. Um, however, as Paul shows us, we can't, we can't fully appreciate these three verses without having the preceding verses to show our true state that we're dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God not a result of work so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Fifteen years ago this week, my mom passed away, and I was really blessed to have the opportunity to spend um, the last week of her life with her. 
Uh, the last couple of days, she was not uh, alert, but, um, you know, we, we had a lot of talks. Late at night, I'd say, Mom, what's your favorite scripture? And she said, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And I knew what the scripture, what it read, and I knew it was powerful, and, but it, doesn't mean, it means much more to me today than it did 15 years ago. What is grace? What is that grace? What is the grace my mom was saying that she was so excited about? If you ask a person, what is the definition of grace? You know, I love the definition. It says it's an undeserved gift, but, but my spirit won't let me just accept that that's all it is. It's unmerited favor. Because I don't think it goes far enough when referring to the grace of God. As a young boy, I didn't fully understand grace. It wasn't because I wasn't taught it. Um, I just didn't really comprehend it. Um, I used to think of it as being a separate item. Uh, I thought it as God was on a heavenly throne and he would throw grace at me when I needed it. You need grace to get through this, through that. You know, I always thought it was apart from him somehow. Don't ask me why. But how wrong was I for that? How wrong? Because grace is not a thing. It's not a thing. Grace is not stuff that God gives apart from himself. He doesn't run out of it. God gives himself, and we don't deserve it. That's grace. It's a gift, but God is not only the giver. He himself is the gift. God's grace, God graces us with himself. Grace changes everything. Grace saves and sanctifies, but so often grace is something we look back to rather than forward by. As a professing believer, it will vastly change the lens in which you see other people, places, things, and even circumstances. That grace is, will change, God's grace will change that. It does not stop with you. You see, God's grace works through you in this lost and dying world. And there's more important newsflash from our text this morning. You know where it says we are God's workmanship. Another translation says we're a masterpiece. Well, I'll tell you what, for a 58-year-old, one-legged, overweight, bald-headed guy, God tells me I'm his masterpiece. How can that be? Ephesians 2.10 clearly states that God is crafting a great work of art out of every life that is committed to him. Paul said we've been created anew in Christ. When you read the book of Ephesians, you really need to keep one word at the forefront of your mind as you read it. Grace. Grace wasn't offered to us after we came to Christ. Grace was offered before we came to Christ. And Paul said in Romans, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given the glory. Romans 15, 7, therefore accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. You see, the grace of God is really amazing. That grace we sing about, it is amazing because it radiates and shines as a beacon within us to a lost and dying world. It draws men and women into himself. Grace does not and will not stop there, though. It does not stop there. When we show grace to others, we are doing what God does. God saved you by grace when you believed, and you cannot take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Here's a very difficult question just to mull around in your mind. 
How do you look at those around you who are non-believers? Don't have to answer it, but just think about it. The Bible calls us to be fishers of men. Do you remember singing that? I will make you fishers of men. Yeah, we've all sung that. We share something in common with fish. The first thing you have to do with fish when you catch them is to clean them. Ever cleaned a fish? Believe it or not, I did when I was a little guy. I used to fish all the time. We'd clean them. We didn't eat them, but I'd clean them. I don't know why. It's a messy process. Uh, most people don't really enjoy it. It's messy because it's necessary. When you catch fish, they're not ready to eat. When we first come to Christ, we're not quite ready to be used yet either. So Jesus, Jesus begins the cleaning process. Now, he accepts us just as we are. That's why we still sing that song, Just As I Am, because that's the way we come to God as sinners, messed up, and we're nothing without Christ. We are nothing without his righteousness. So we have to be careful we ne that we never send out the wrong message or signals to unbelievers because here's the problem. There are many people who believe they're simply not good enough to come to Christ. They believe they have to get their act together first and they have to, before they come to Christ, but nothing could be further from the truth. Here's the truth. The truth is we are not good enough when we receive Christ. But it's only when we realize we're not good enough that we can come to him. This is a barrier that we need to tear down. Here's the process. We come to God just as we are. Then God starts in the process of what the Bible calls sanctification. I'm being sanctified, but I've not been completely sanctified. It is progressive. It's an ongoing process. I am saved, but I'm still in the process of being cleaned up. Here are a few things that as recipients of God's grace, as believers this morning, we need to allow unbelievers to do. Allow unbelievers to question your faith. Allow them to ask. 1 Peter 3.15 says, If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Show interest in their opinions, their doubts, their questions, even if you don't agree. I never want to present myself as someone who thinks I've arrived or have it all together. Allow unbelievers to question your faith. Allow unbelievers to wrestle with their unbelief. A good example of this is found in the ninth chapter of the book of Mark. A man brought his son to Jesus. His son was demon-possessed. But even as his father brought his son to Jesus the Father, was, he was still struggling with his belief in who Christ was. Jesus told the Father, anything is possible to whom believes. This is what the Father said. I do believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. I have beliefs, but I also have doubts. Unless you you're perfect, you should be able to identify with that statement. We all have doubts. I don't have my act all together. I'm not flawless. I make mistakes. Dead in our sins, flawed, that's how we came to Christ. And we should allow others the same privilege. When we show grace to others, we're following in the same steps of Jesus. Every time he approached them, he was approaching them in grace. He didn't have a judgment towards them when he approached them. As believers, we need to be willing to allow people to see us as we really are. We don't have to wear a veil. 
We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to appear to be happy all the time. We have struggles, but we, we have to be honest about them. It, can't, it, it can really be contagious. When you actually let your hair down, you know, I'm a believer, but I'm having a hard time with this. People are really going to respect, and it's going to draw in, because we need answers from above. We don't need answers from a book. We don't need it from a television program or a podcast. We need the person of Jesus through God's Word. Unbelievers need to understand that we're on a journey together. We are broken people on a journey together towards someone who is perfect. Perfect. As we wind down this morning, uh, I know Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I haven't even covered everything that I intended. But you know what? As a, he's speaking to the church this morning. He's speaking to all of us. But for me, it, it reminded me, here's where I came from. I came from a the dead, dead spot in sin. And let, it reminded me of where I am today. I'm setting, I'm setting right to the right of Christ. He's my hope. Thirdly, that word grace, it reminds me of that. That grace changes everything. And also, I'm God's masterpiece. He's not finished with me yet. As a believer, we all have a story to tell and how we met Christ. This morning, maybe you've not met him. Uh, maybe you've heard of him, but you want to experience that forgiveness and uh, that new creation. Uh, he, he is there, and he's ready to do that. Uh, there's a story that I thought of I haven't, um, that I had to look for that I remember as a young man that I, uh, one of the ministers shared, and it really impacted me. Um, a woman was diagnosed with a terminal Ill illness and had been given three months to live. As she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and asked him to come to her house to discuss some of her final wishes. She told him what songs she wanted at her funeral and what scriptures she wanted read and what outfit she even wanted to wear to be buried in. And she requested to be buried with her favorite Bible. As the pastor prepared to leave, the woman suddenly remembered something else. There's one more thing. The pastor said, what is it? She said, this is important. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the woman, not knowing quite what to say. The woman explained, in all my years of attending church, socials, and potluck dinners, when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork, keep your fork. It was my favorite part of the meal because I knew something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake, deep dish apple pie. So when people see me in that casket with a fork in my hand and they ask, what's with the fork? I want you to tell them, keep your fork the best is yet to come. God is able to rescue us from our sin. He rescues us in the divine person of Jesus Christ, rescuing us from his wrath by giving us spiritual life and finally by giving us a new home with him. His grace, it's amazing, and it changes everything. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, how amazing your grace is, Lord, and I thank you for the truth of your word. I'm thankful that you speak clearly uh, through your word. It's living and breathing. And Lord, as we pause at this moment, Father, I just pray that as sponges, we'll just absorb all you have for us this morning. 
I give you praise, honor, and glory. And Father, as we sing praises to your name, may we be a sweet aroma of praise to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.